I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Do you have any idea what John Bolton would say if he's called to testify? That's not my 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 task here. Okay, my 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 do you my 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 task here? Do you have any idea? I'm not. I'm not. Well, look, I, my task here is to deal with the existing record. Okay, there will not be a record with regard to what Joel, John Bolton might testify to until such time as the Senate, in its wisdom, decides that it needs to hear from John Bolton. And what happens if the Senate does vote? that it wants to hear his testimony. Then we'll, we are prepared for all contingencies, including a trial with witnesses as necessary. That was Robert Ray, one of President Trump's lawyers, during a skullduggery interview on Friday, struggling a bit with a simple question about former National Security Advisor John Bolton and what he might say if he is called to testify in the impeachment trial. We are prepared for all contingencies, Ray finally says. Well, that contingency may now be here. In a bombshell report by the New York Times, Bolton's upcoming book manuscript has upended the impeachment trial. In the book, Bolton alleges that Trump did indeed tie Ukrainian military aid to investigations about the Bidens, directly undermining one of the linchpins of the president's defense. We'll discuss what this means, and we'll talk to the Washington Post's Carol Lenick, one of the authors of a stunning new book on Trump, A Very Stable Genius, and we'll hear from Kevin Sheakey, the campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg, about the ex-New York mayor's hoped-for path to victory on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, we uh, often get ourselves all worked up about uh, news stories and revelations in the uh, Trump impeachment drama that often don't uh, have as much uh, legs or traction as we think they're going to have at the time. But, man, this Bolton story and what he says in this upcoming book is a stunner. And I think it really has the potential to completely throw a monkey wrench in the uh, impeachment trial. A Bolton of lightning. Get that? Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. You've been working on that all night. <laughs> no, it just, I just, it just came to me. Uh, yeah, this is, this is stunning. I've been talking to uh, Republicans this morning, Republican lawyers, who kind of uh, just can't believe it. Uh, you know, look, on the one hand, we should not be maybe all of that surprised because these things have a tendency of happening <laughs> right when you think things uh, are kind of quieting down. And it did look, and you and I were talking about this over the weekend, it did look like 
the uh, wind was coming out of the sails for the Democrats, uh, that they were not likely to win this vote to call witnesses and that the trial could be over as uh, soon as uh, the, the end of this uh, this week. Maybe yeah, that- I fully expected a vote to acquit on Friday after no witnesses are called. But, you know, the reason I think this is so significant on so many different levels is that it really does contradict what the president's own lawyers were telling the senators on Saturday when they opened up their case. And, you know, the guy who I thought did the best job for the president was uh, Michael Perpura. He's the deputy White House counsel, and he laid out the essence of the president's defense in which he made the point on a number of occasions that there was no direct testimony that the president ever linked the withheld military aid to investigations about the Bidens. We have a couple of clips from Purpura's testimony, and I think uh, let's play uh, one of them right here. The president did absolutely nothing wrong. The Democrats' allegation that the president engaged in a quid pro quo is unfounded and contrary to the facts. The truth is simple, and it's right before our eyes. The president was at all times acting in our national interest and pursuant to his oath of office. Acting at all times in the national interest, uh, not in his political interest. At all times, those are the key words there. And then Purpura went on to say that not a single, and I'm quoting from his uh presentation to the Senate. Not a single witness testified that the president himself said there was any connection between any investigations and security assistance, a presidential meeting or anything else. And then he went on to play excerpts from Gordon Sondland's testimony in which he did say there was a quid pro quo, but said that was his presumption. So now we have Bolton's book manuscript, if correctly reported by the New York Times, that says, yes, indeed, that's exactly what Trump told him. He was not going to release the military aid unless the Ukrainians coughed up information about the Bidens. And what I think you and I both realized, uh, you know, soon after that New York Times bombshell story broke was that the lawyers here have really exposed themselves and exposed their client um, in pretty serious ways. It seems to me that the lawyers either engaged in kind of stunning legal malpractice because they didn't know uh, about this manuscript, they didn't know what John Bolton's testimony would be if he testified, or they did know and they still made those representations that you just talked about in the impeachment trial. Now, you know, Purporto did not say, you know, it's not it's not a lie because uh, he talked about uh, what testimony there was in the House impeachment trial. But, right. but it is, it, uh, to call it too clever by half is very generous. It's uh, really right up on the line, if not crossing the line. And here's the question that I have. How is it possible that the defense team wouldn't have known that this was what Bolton's testimony was going to be? Look, back in November, back in November, Chuck Cooper, uh, Bolton's lawyer, very publicly 
said and put in a letter that Bolton would have testimony that would be extremely relevant to this case. Bolton, quote, was personally involved, here I'm quoting from his letter, was personally involved in many of the events, meetings, and conversations about which you have already received testimony, as well as many relevant meetings and conversations that have not yet been discussed in the testimonies thus far. So if you're Trump's lawyer, you don't do everything you possibly can to find out what that testimony would be? Well, add on top of that, we now know that on December 30, the Bolton submitted his book manuscript to the White House for a review about potential classified information. It went to the National Security Council. So somebody in the White House reads the book manuscript. That's presumably going to be somebody on the legal staff. I think we know that. Those are lawyers who report to SIP alone. Uh, the chief White House counsel, who's the in charge of the president's case. It is just absolutely mind-boggling to me that this information could have been out there and the president's lawyers did not make an attempt to either find out and if they did find out and deal with it. You could have anticipated this. They could have inoculated themselves a bit by telling the senators, look, there may be testimony out there that there was a linkage that the president at times may have said things along those lines. We'll grant you that, but that was not his only motivation. That was not his primary motivation. We'll, you know, you you will see that there were legitimate national security concerns that the president was grappling with. They could have at least made an effort to anticipate and inoculate a bit, but they didn't do that. Instead, Purpuro, you know, played the clips of Gordon Sondland saying, nobody ever told me directly that the president never told me directly that there was any linkage. So now we have evidence, evidence, a book manuscript that directly contradicts that. I don't know how the Senate can get away with not calling Bolton as a witness at this point. At a minimum, the first thing somebody has to do is subpoena that book manuscript. It's It just went live. The book just went live on Amazon this morning. Interesting timing for publication March 17th. I did note, and I tweeted this this morning, that Byron York, one of the president's stalwart defenders on Twitter, tweeted out this morning that the public deserves to see this book manuscript at this point. And I think it's really hard for any senator to disagree. Look, we don't know for sure how this information got out, but it is also the case that Bolton did have a motive for it to come out because think about the position he would have been in if he had not been allowed to come forward and testify, if he hadn't testified, and then Trump is acquitted without any witnesses, and then his book comes out, and it's got this bombshell information, and it would have made him look pretty terrible. Let's talk about uh, the implications of all of this, however, and what's likely to happen next. Already, as we tape here on Monday morning, Mitt Romney has come forward and said that he believes it is now more likely that Republicans will vote, that enough Republicans will vote to bring 
witnesses forward than not. Lindsey Graham has already said, well, uh, if if the Republicans vote for witnesses, you know, and, and the Democrats get their witnesses, then the White House is going to have their witnesses too, you know, implying that I think it'll be would be both Bidens, uh, v- uh, Vice President Biden and yeah. Hunter Biden. So uh, I, I think that's likely, I actually, think one, at least one of them. Yes. I think it is now more likely than not that we not only hear from Bolton, but that the uh, we're also going to hear from Hunter Biden. Yeah, because the uh, the president's lawyers will get a chance to call one of their witnesses. Clearly, Hunter Biden seems like the low hanging fruit here, and that's going to uh, add. It's going to turn this into more of the circus like atmosphere that I think uh, Mitch McConnell was desperate to avoid in his efforts to get this over with as quickly as well possible. and let's and let's talk uh, about let's talk about uh, Mitch McConnell for a second because uh, in our previous podcast uh, where we had uh, Robert Ray on um, we talked about whether McConnell's strategy to wait until uh, midway through the trial before voting on on the question of witnesses, uh, whether that was a smart strategy. And I think I had said, well, it might be. It's classic McConnell, kick the can down the road, take some of the energy uh, you know, out of it, and, and then prevail on that vote. Now it's not looking like such a smart strategy, because if they had not waited, uh, they wouldn't be in the position they're in right now. The other thing that I want to talk about is we've also talked about whether the White House would invoke executive privilege if the Senate does vote to have witnesses, and Bolton in particular. I think the conventional wisdom, and I think we believe that they almost certainly would invoke executive privilege. I think that's a harder case for them to make now. They may still do it. I think there will be questions about whether that privilege has has been waived, not because Bolton waived the privilege by writing the book, but because the president, if you go on on Twitter, is disputing what Bolton says on the very question of whether you know they had this conversation about whether you know the money was tied to uh, the investigation. So I think that's going to be a very interesting legal question to to watch. Yeah, look, if they go the invoking executive privilege route to shut down Bolton entirely, it just seems to me that is a loser on every level. You have a book that is going to be coming out in what six weeks. A little more than that, and the entire world will be able to read it. But the Senate, who have to vote in this trial, the senators will not be allowed to see it. The optics of that seems to me are terrible for the White House and will be a political loser. Look, I think that there are a number of senators right now, Republicans, who have been blindsided by this. They thought they were on a quick and easy path, and the president's lawyers misled them. You know, in many ways, that may be the biggest mistake that the Trump White House has made yet. Um, I I could not agree more with you on that. I think this is going to cause a real rift between uh, Senate Republicans and the White House because it makes them look foolish. And I think that's a that's going to be a real problem. Look, it's dangerous to predict what's going to happen on a you know Monday morning uh, taping of a podcast. So much can happen between now and later in the week. But I think at least at this point, it feels like there's a possibility not just that the four 
Republican senators who the Democrats would need to get witnesses will be on their side. But you could actually have a cascade effect right now. And my guess is that people like Susan Collins, who has have already said that they were going to vote for witnesses, are furiously lobbying other Republicans who have not actually said what they would do. And maybe some who've already said that they would vote against witnesses and might change their mind because they want the political cover of having more Uh, Republicans on their side. I think you could get a cascade effect. I know you tweeted that we're not quite at uh, the Barry Goldwater moment yet. I don't think we're going to see Republicans traipsing up to, you know, to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to call for the president's resignation. But this is this is significant. It is. Look, and final point here, it's 1120 a.m. on Monday at one o'clock. The president's lawyers will resume their defense. This is clearly the elephant in the room. Do they address the Bolton bombshell when they make their presentation to the Senate. I think everybody's going to be watching that. We should point out that we've got two really good guests on this episode with interviews we did last week. They're both really fascinating. Carol Lenig, co-author of this great new book, A Very Stable Genius about Trump, and Kevin Sheeky to talk some politics. He's Bloomberg's uh, political guru, his call rove, and he's got uh, quite a few interesting things to say. So, And we will be back to update you on all things impeachment. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, Skullduggery will be on the case. You got it. We now have with us Carol Lenig, the co-author of the fabulous new bestseller, A Very Stable Genius, Donald Trump's Testing of America. Carol, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm glad to be here. So just amazing reporting in this book. You guys are flies on the wall on more scenes than anybody can imagine. There have been a lot of Trump books. I co-wrote one myself, and each one bills themselves as having shocking behavior. But um, man, you have taken the cake with this one and uh, taken it further than anybody else has. I guess my first question is, you know, what do we make of all this? How should we view our president when you lay out these scenes of him being ignorant about key matters of American history, doesn't know what happened at Pearl Harbor, explodes at people for inexplicable reasons? Give us your sort of bottom line assessment. So thanks, first of all, because we do feel like we're trying to take you inside every room. But an organizing principle for Phil and me was that there have been amazing Trump books. There have been amazing drop your jaw stories told about different things that he does and his decision making process. But what we really wanted to to figure out was what makes him tick? What motivates him what are the themes and what we you know what we found was there were patterns and there was a oddly enough a logic to way the way Donald Trump operates every politician is about perpetuating their power but this president put his power above national security above his intel brief above the long-range planning basically every day. We have more than 200 people we interviewed, many of them who worked at his shoulder. And what they say is 
they feel lucky that we haven't had a real crisis because the way this person makes decisions is always about winning the day, winning his day for his self-image. That was, that was what was going on. So there are so many scenes, which I want to sort of walk you through, but certainly the one that uh, has probably gotten the most attention, but not enough, is The Tank, which we've talked about before. We, we did another podcast with Peter Bergen. Right, who uh, had his own account of The, the Tank but scene, that's like which, my was, point about there which was a, pretty shocking in itself. Yeah. But, I mean, but the more <laughs> you scratch, the more there is. And so tell us a little bit about uh, that story. You know, we had such a time about this issue of the tank because here's what it is and you guys know because you're reporters every time we interviewed somebody about the tank we thought oh this will be cool a little history it'll be a little flavor everybody's written about it woodward bergen etc cetera, etc cetera. but there was something in those interviews where people were like i'm not going to tell you everything you could just feel they were not going to tell you everything and that made us curious like what is it you're not going to say what is it you don't want to share and apparently a group of these people who were at this meeting, July 2017, it's supposed to be a tutorial for Donald Trump. At the Pentagon. At the Pentagon, one of the most sacred spaces in the world for where decisions of war and peace are made. Gary Cohn, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, and um, General Mattis, Secretary of Defense, arranged this tutorial, sort of a schoolhouse rock. We're going to explain to Donald Trump, who's always bellowing and angry at us, about where the bases are, where the troops are. We're going to explain to them why these things help make us safe and we can all sleep near and deep tonight because we're not going to get into any wars. These are the things that keep us safe. That was the operating principle of this meeting. The president was not having it, and he was bellowing at these people to such a degree that General Mattis had his forehead bowed down. And what we're told is Rex Tillerson was furious. Like, why is everybody allowing the president to dress them down this way? He called them dopes and babies. As has been reported elsewhere, he said these were loser wars. But the thing they all said they were never going to repeat was a curse word like no other for the Pentagon brass. And it's not even a curse word. It was the biggest insult, which was, I wouldn't go to war with you people. That took them out at the knees. And that's when Rex Tillerson, seeing that Mattis is not talking back, stands up and says, Mr. President, you're wrong. That's not true. He explains, you know, the men and women who climb into uniforms do it to protect us. And it's uh, not, as the president suggested, to make a buck. I thought it was interesting that it was Tillerson who was the only one who stood up and spoke truth to power. And he was waiting for others, for Mattis, for Pence. Pence yes. was there like a potted plant, didn't say anything. Pence made a lot of people in that room really quietly livid because several of them called him a wax figure. He, he said nothing. And his sons in the military, a lot of the people in that room, not only served, they have family that served, they've lost loved ones. And uh, this was devastating. You know, there were there was a woman who who appeared to be crying and tried to cover it up. And let me ask you, I've got a, a kind of a bottom line question after doing all this amazing reporting and talking to clearly huge numbers of people who worked closely with the president. So there's, you know, a, a, the rationale for people for a lot of people who went into government uh, into this administration where they were going to be the adults in the room, uh, they were going to be able to uh, manage him and kind of mitigate the potential uh, dangers. 
But the other way of looking at it is, did they enable him? And you have a lot of examples in the book of where you could kind of see it both ways. Um, fascinating. I mean, we're both Justice Department reporters, so so the internal machinations inside the Justice Department, you know, you could look at it as an inter- institutional resistance. I love all the scenes where they're literally planning for uh, a Saturday night massacre and how to protect the integrity of the Mueller investigation and so on and so forth. What was your takeaway in terms of that dynamic and that kind of walking that line of enabling this president versus protecting us from him? Wow, what a good question, because um, we generally see in this book and in our reporting this trajectory, and it's it's edging towards chaos. It's lurching towards a lack of order. Um, the grownups are being driven out of the room by a president who is, you know, beating up on people who try to give him good counsel. Mattis, Kelly, Nielsen, Tillerson, all of them um, being berated and and abused. Actually, in a, in a workplace, this would be a hostile work environment that you could get a lawsuit over. But it's the White House. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way till now. But um, so generally writ large, the people around the president increasingly see it as their mission to say yes. And, you know, we never thought we'd be publishing a book into the day of the opening of an impeachment trial that never crossed our minds. We actually were quite worried about how it was landing in that way. Um, this is a big news story, and the book might have gotten lost in what is a fairly historic event. But the reporting kind of foreshadows where we are now because the enabling led us to these situations where the president, you know, barks at his State Department to do what he wants, fire this ambassador, Pompeo can't stop it, um, hold up this aid, keep Ukraine on the hook. Mulvaney goes along with it, even though he's getting memos from the General Accounting Office, um, sorry, the Government Accountability Office, warning them that it's illegal. So it, it is all going sort of that way. People have asked me, why did these other people who hope to give the president good counsel at the beginning and guide this novice, this apprentice, why did they stay there? I, I often just turn back and say, would you have rather they not be there? Well, I guess my question is, is there anybody who does stand up to him, who said, no, Mr. President, you can't do that. Well, that You're was wrong. Tillerson in the tank well, at one time. That was, yeah, and, and you should tell us what happened to Tillerson, <laughs> the story of what happened to Tillerson. But, you know, I, I, inside the White House, I mean, did you find people who, you know, talk back and say, Mr. President, that's unacceptable. You cannot do that. Well, look at the people who said no. Don McGahn, gone. John Kelly, who really literally gave it to the president almost every day. You know, when, when people would leave, he'd turn to, to Donald Trump and say, that's batshit. We're not doing that. Um, so are you allowed to say that? No, yes, oh, you yes. are. But, uh, did, but did he say that's batshit to the president? Yes, yes, he does. yes, absolutely. Okay. John Dowd, an attorney uh, for the president, got very heated with the president, tried to be polite, but sometimes says, we're not doing that. Here's why. Gone. I mean, I'm trying to think of a person today who is able to really speak truth to him and remains in a senior role, and it's hard. Uh, Tillerson, go ahead, tell us what happened to him. Tillerson, sadly, you know, um, 
had a lot of knowledge that he tried to give the president, especially about Vladimir Putin. He negotiated with him many, many times and met with him privately when he was the CEO of Exxon. He wasn't able to impart a lot of knowledge to Donald Trump. He tried, but he discovers while he is on a trip to Africa, basically trying to do a little cleanup after the president has called a series of African nations shithole countries. Um, Tillerson is is doing this cleanup in aisle five, uh, you know, embassy tour. And while he's there, he gets a call in the middle of the night, uh, I believe is in Kenya at this point. And it's Kelly, the chief of staff on the phone saying, you know, something's going on here. I went down to the Oval Office. Um, two people came out and he was screaming about you. I think this is really bad. I think you should get back. Those aren't exact quotes, but it's close. Tillerson says, it's not a good time for me to come back. I got a lot of meetings. Kelly calls him back immediately and says, look, I think it's okay. Stay where you are. It's fine. But the next night, middle of the night, they have the diplomatic security guards wake him up. His chief of staff goes in. It's Kelly again on the bat phone. Uh, The president's going to fire you. Get back. Uh, Tillerson says, you know, hands up in the air. Well, he's not really hurting for a job or money. Okay, but it's really bad to fire me across the globe. It looks terrible. You just make the country look foolish. So Kelly says, I'll try to stall him. I'll try to stall him. Uh, He gets on a plane. Can't remember if it was Kigali. Anyway, heads home. 4 a.m. lands at Andrews. Decides he's going to go get fresh clothes at his beautiful, beautiful um, mansion in Calorama. And swings back around and the president's already fired him by tweet. Now you talked before about uh, Tillerson trying to impart knowledge uh, to the president. And I guess I have another kind of bottom line question, which is um, his ignorance and how dangerous uh, that is. So here are a couple of examples from your book. He meets with the prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, and tells him that India and China do not have a border. Uh, with each other. Yes. Um, he sort of orders uh, Tillerson to uh, just... We should, get- we should remind people that there was actually once a border war between India and China <laughs> in right. 1962. Well, and, right. Go ahead. He, you knew that, he, Mike. I did. He essentially <laughs> orders uh, Tillerson to um, repeal the Foreign Corrupt Practice Act because he thinks it's unfair that American businessmen are not allowed to bribe you know, foreign leaders and foreign companies and so on and so forth. I mean, it, the examples are just endless. And yet people say he's a mad genius. You know, he has this political shrewdness. And maybe those things can both be true. But to what extent is the ignorance really a problem? You know, one thing that I find fascinating about these deep dive interviews when we sit with people who've spent a lot of time with the president, and Phil and I talked about it a lot, they find him charming. They find him compelling, and they also are really freaked out by how incapable he is of taking information. It's almost an insult to Donald Trump for you to sit down with him and say, you know, I've studied North Korea for two decades of my career. I'm here for you to tell you how things are in that region of the world. It is an insult. Um, they, They watch him sort of curl his his lips and frown and, and fold his arms across his chest and, and get kind of cross. Every president needs information to do their job. That's what the whole firmament is about. That's why there's a National Security Council. 
they don't, you don't have to know if there's a border between China and India. You have to listen to people who tell you there is before you go to meet with the prime minister of India. <laughs> um, but he didn't listen to his briefing before he went. Um, because I got this. That's the president's Well, it's like that scene in the tank where, I forget who is it that's telling him, I think it was Mattis who's telling him about the uh, post, the international rule, rules-based order or what, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. Post-war, and, right. And uh, Bannon is just kind of chortling, uh, you know, like, the president's going to hate this. <laughs> you know, he doesn't <laughs> yeah. want to be lectured to about with all these fancy words. Now, yeah. Now, of course, you know, back a while ago, it was widely reported that there were folks talking about the 25th Amendment, invoking it on the grounds that the president is simply unfit to serve. And there was actually a meeting at the Justice Department in which Rod Rosenstein, then the deputy attorney general, is supposed to have floated the idea also of secretly taping the president to get evidence. Now, I've read your account of that, which is deeper and richer than um, any other I've read, but it was a little unclear to me where you came down on what, because Rosenstein, of course, has denied the account, which was first published in the New York Times of the invocation of the 25th Amendment, or suggested it was just a joke. Where do you come down on whether or not that actually happened and Rosenstein was serious? Oh, there are so many ways to come down. Um, I would just say, Mike, that I uh, feel like this is one of those ones where you know, rigorous reporting is getting consistent stories. And this is a place where the stories are so inconsistent. Um, McCabe believes it was serious, serious enough that he went to Jim Baker, the lawyer for the FBI. And Rod Rosenstein is, as far as I can tell, based on multiple people he's spoken to, was like, this is a joke, ridiculous. I'll say there's one thing in Rod's favor uh, in terms of his interpretation. Uh, th this is about the wiretapping. Can you imagine, both of you Justice Department reporters and, and veterans, can you ma imagine a guy who's supervising one of the most high-profile, historic federal investigations in America agreeing to wear a wire? It, it's sort of ludicrous on its face. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't, I, and I yeah. can't, and we both know Rod, and, you know, he's a... <laughs> He's a by-the-book by guy. By-the-book kind of guy. Right. Um, the 25th Amendment piece of it, you know, I think it may have a little more credibility. Uh, but even that, I think, may be a, may be a stretch. Yeah. Now, I, I, can I say one thing sure. about it? I almost feel like this is like this danger zone, not just about what Rod thought or what, um, you know, McCabe thought. We heard at the Washington Post during this time frame that the generals were discussing, is he all there? That's something that you don't have to stretch to know that they were thinking about it, which is different than like invoking the amendment. It's they're just going, wait a minute. Is he really able to process because he's rejecting information and he's so undisciplined? But we're not MDs. Phil and I, we're right. just telling you what people <laughs> saw. Now, the president's defenders will say uh, and have said, look, of course, the president was lashing out and angry for good reason. He was being accused of all sorts of things from the get-go, particularly on the Russia front, a Russian asset, uh, you know, uh, a tool of Putin, the allegations in the Steele dossier, which Jim Comey presents to him before he even becomes president. And, sure, sure. you know, I, I, 
I know you finished your book before the new Inspector General report came out, but that certainly cast a lot of doubt on the credibility of some of those allegations. Uh, did the president have a right to be angry about some of the charges that were being bandied about in the media about him? I do think he had reason to be intensely frustrated in the sense that he knew he, his family members, which basically did make up his campaign, uh, and sort of the inner circle of of his campaign was not colluding with Russia. But there are two things that were going on at the same time, and you know them well. One, the president had a horrific record for mangling the truth, and that's a generous interpretation. So there were reasons for reporters to be, yeah, sure, you didn't collude. Mm -hmm. Um, The second thing that was going on was there is a subtle um, and not so subtle difference between cooperating and encouraging the hell out out of Russia. So, for example, in the book, we have a scene where two of the key investigators on the Mueller probe who are responsible for looking into coordination discover through a digital trail that late at night in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, what it is late at night at the time, when Donald Trump, the candidate, is saying, Russia, if you're listening, it's like morning in Doral, that they go back to work. Those GRU Intel operatives slash cyber cyber guys, they go back to work and do what Trump asked uh, and start digging into Hillary Clinton's server. I I should say I love that scene because, first of all, I didn't know that it was Rush Atkinson, son of our former (laughs) colleague Rick Atkinson, uh, award-winning historian, uh, who discovered that. Yeah. Uh, on his own, something the NSA hadn't even right. pieced it, together. He's like, so it's more than it's more than it's just uh, eight hours later or whatever it was. They actually did hack the files. It's actually you, you, the timing is right that that it was that was right was when they five were going, hours five after hours later, Trump but it was made right the when they were going back to right. work. So because yeah. what, what I had not seen was that anyone had actually established a link between what Trump said and the fact that they had. They did could, the hack then. They but. could see this attempted, you know, penetration on the ser- three different servers, if I remember. But I'd have to look at the page again. They see it almost instantaneously. It's not. It's not five hours. It's fairly soon after, hmm. and it's going. It, it would be like you and me coming back into the office at one in the morning. You know, we've had dinner, but but Donald Trump summoned us back. Right. <laughs> so I guess the question that the Senate is wrestling with right now is, what does the country do about this? What is the appropriate response to a president this sort of off the rails? And let's take it out. Let's take it away from what the Senate should do on impeachment. Let's talk about how the media should cover a president like this, because we've gotten into a, a, a place where for many people watching CNN and MSNBC and the relentless criticism of Trump turns them off. It seems like the media is biased when, in fact, many times it's just sort of calling out obvious mistruths. Other times, maybe not so. You're still covering the Trump presidency. How do you approach a president this different than any other public figure you've ever covered? 
I feel like the president has very successfully turned us in into the enemy. The media is the enemy, and he's convincing his voters and his supporters that we're against them and we're against him. And that's because we often do point out that he makes false statements. Um, we often uh, chase down his tweets. And he's very successful at communicating that he's a fighter for them. He's their champion. He's the one, the only one that's going to stand up to a bloated democracy and a deep state and uh, people who, who are political elites and smarty pants that went to good schools and that disdain this forgotten part of America. Well, Donald Trump's policies haven't always delivered for this forgotten America that feels disdained. In fact, sometimes it's terribly backfired on them. And I think as reporters, we should be doing more, investing more in the policy and the delivery that he, he promises and less on the tweets. So, yeah, not uh, just reacting to the outrage machine, but actually reporting the impact of, of his policies. But that's not the reporting, the kind of reporting you really did for this book. This is really about his um, internal, his conduct and, you know, raising a lot of questions about you know, frankly, his sanity, which is important too. But I guess another dimension here is whether we have become kind of desensitized to all of the outrageous things that we hear about and read about in terms of Trump's conduct, and uh, to what extent that's a that's a challenge. I mean, everyone—it's a little bit like there's Trump porn out there. We all we all eat this stuff up. But what impact is it really having in terms of the kind of the body politic? So it. Such a smart question and also one that I have an allergic reaction to. I'll tell you why. I'm a journalist. I don't tell people how to live their lives, vote, or what to make of things. Right. We just give you the facts right. and then you decide. Right. But um, I was moved. Phil and I both were. And we put it on the jacket of our book, A Very Stable Genius, by a national security aide who was un unhinged by watching Donald Trump in action. And your question made me think of it. Because it again, we're not doctors, we're looking at fitness for office, not sanity. But this person's feeling was that we are becoming numb, to your point, and we are becoming inured. And the country is tolerating a new level that worried this person. So I'm just going to read it really quickly. The disdain he shows for our country's foundation and its principles, the disregard he has for right and wrong. Your fist clenches, your teeth grate, the hair goes up on the back of your neck. I have to remind myself I said an oath to a document in the National Archives. I swore to the Constitution I didn't swear an oath to this blank jackass. <laughs> the time is coming. Our nation will be tested. Every nation is. Rome fell. Remember, he is opening up vulnerabilities for this to happen. That is my fear. This person voiced something that many did. They just voiced it better, which is that the bar is being lowered, attacking your own Justice Department, calling the Justice Department your Justice Department that should defend you. A president attacking a lieutenant colonel who says in testimony before Congress that he was concerned about the president ask, asking a foreign leader for a favor, though, for his political reelection. It's that kind of bar um, that, that these wonderful sources helped us see falling. And the, the words that he used work their way into the title of your book, right? Because you talk, it's the testing, 
test, the testing right. of America. And, right. and just just one final point I was thinking as you were reading that, especially in your reference to um, uh, Vinman bringing others down because we had that uh, extraordinary tweet from Marsha Blackburn, the senator from Tennessee yesterday, attacking Vinman's patriotism. Yes. A guy, a, 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 a purple a, heart, a purple heart, Iraq war combat veteran serving his country on the National Security Council, working in Donald Trump's White House. And because he gave testimony that was inconvenient to the president, a senator from Tennessee, a Republican, uh, questions his patriotism. Carol, it is a, a remarkable book. Um, everybody should read it. A very stable genius. Congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys. Great questions. Thanks, Carol. We are now joined by Kevin Sheiky, the campaign manager for Mike Bloomberg, former deputy mayor of New York. Kevin, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. So you've got a new ad out, we understand, that's uh, hitting our president on his stewardship of the U.S. military. You want to tell us about it? And premiering on Fox News. Oh, and right? which premiering on he was, Fox uh, It is. Um, I got to make my uh, first appearance on Fox and Friends this morning. It's a, a first for me. How'd um, it go? The ad is uh, running on Fox nationally and uh, ran several times uh, during that show this morning. And uh, you want to tell us about the ad? Yeah. I mean, listen, the ad is picking up on a book that's come out uh, in terms of how uh, the president has dealt with mi military leaders or, you know, quite frankly, not dealt with them appropriately. I actually did share it with uh, someone I've gotten to know. I've, I've got, had the great honor uh, to get to know a number of very distinguished military leaders. And one of the people I showed it to, who is one of the greatest and most honored military leaders still alive today, said to me, he disrespects us all. He makes America weaker and uh, run it far and wide. And I think that's a direct quote. And you put this on Fox because... You also saw a chance to get I think under the president's skin, Listen, right? I don't think we can be cavalier that uh, uh, there are not people who support this president across this country. He has a strong base of support among at least 50, 40 percent of voters across the nation. And uh, Mike felt it's important that, that everyone um, in this country understands the damage he's done. And, and to quote that military leader, how he's made us weaker. Listen, Mike is doing something that is really unique. In fact, I think we're doing a series of things that are unique. Uh, but the first thing is that Mike is running a national political primary. No one, in my view, has done that since 1960, since John F. Kennedy. At least since 1976, we've allowed two small states to pick our nominee, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president. Iowa and New Hampshire has chosen those nominees, and then those nominees have gone on to win the nomination. Uh, Mike has taken a much different tact. Mike has decided to skip the first four early states, which are 3.9 percent of the delegates, and to run across the country in every other state across the country. He's also chosen to do something else, which again is as radical as the first and, and together is even more radical, which is he's launched a general election today. He doesn't think that this country can afford to wait to run a race in the last three months of a campaign while President Trump has been running it for four years. Okay. So look, the fact is we do have an Iowa caucus and we do have a New Hampshire primary and a South Carolina primary. And, uh, Right now, Vice President Biden seems to be doing quite well. He has not stumbled. Uh, his standing in the polls stays where has pretty much been consistent and even moved up a bit. As most people understand it, Bloomberg got into this race because of concerns that Biden was going to stumble 
that he was going to fall and we'd be left, the Democrats would be left with a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as their nominee, too far left for the general public. If Biden does not fall down in Iowa and New Hampshire, there seems to be a feeling that, you know, he may be unstoppable. What do you do if Biden wins? Well, let's talk about that. He should win, right? I mean, the voters of Iowa know him better than any other voters in the country, minus Delaware, right? He's run for president for three times. Uh, He's had a distinguished public service career. He has spent uh, certainly the last year or more there, in addition to having been vice president for eight years and having run for president twice before. So he should win Iowa. And certainly he has a campaign that has predicted uh, he will and that he can. Uh, And then he should go on and win New Hampshire after that. I think, you know, Mike Bloomberg is really the firewall between the eventuality that that doesn't happen and Donald Trump's reelection. And so if someone wants to make the argument that, listen, what we're going to do is really default to what has happened since 1976 and that those two early states will ultimately choose a nominee, that may well be the outcome. And then in that regard, Mike Bloomberg would be running the most impressive and earlier starting, i.e., to stand in the way of Donald Trump's reelection. If, on the other hand, Vice President Biden doesn't win Iowa. Again, those voters know him well. And if there is no clear choice or if he finishes third or fourth and if he finishes at about the same in New Hampshire, then this country is going to need a candidate who can put together the broadest possible campaign with the broadest possible set but of if supporters. He does, but, but if he does win in Iowa and in New Hampshire, and the polls show now that he is best positioned, including your candidate, to beat Trump... Would well, you and and would would so, so would, let's question uh, that? That's not true, right? And so right now, Mike Bloomberg's been in this in this race for seven weeks, and he's already does better than any Democratic candidate in the state of Michigan, already, right? Now there are only six states that matter in a general election, and they're Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. That's it, right? And so no, from the position where I sit in terms of the campaign we're running, we are already stronger than any other Democrat to compete in those states that are important in November. Let's look at North Carolina. We have 80 people working in North Carolina with 16 offices across that state. The next Democrat uh, has zero. No one else has anyone in North Carolina until today where Mike Bloomberg does, except Donald Trump, who has been focusing on swing voters in swing states for four years. So if Biden does win Iowa and maybe New Hampshire, certainly he would be very strong in South Carolina. Does Bloomberg drop out? Yeah, listen, I've said this before. This is not a murder-suicide. I think if... I've had the great pleasure of knowing Vice President Biden. I think he's as decent a public servant as I've ever met. And if he ultimately can put the kind of campaign together that the rest of the party should get behind, then the rest of the party, including us, should get behind it. And if he can't, we're in real trouble. Real trouble. All right, but, uh, is, but, but just my... to be clear, if he does win Iowa and looks unstoppable, you drop out even before Super Tuesday? Unclear. Unclear. It's, it's really it's not a my possi- it's it's a really possibility. Not, it's really not my decision, be it the candidate's decision. But you listen, I think if the election, and this is, I think, the point that I want people to understand that people don't understand, which is if this election was held today, I don't care who's running against him, Donald Trump wins because of the strength in those six states I, I mentioned. And it's the reason Mike Bloomberg got off the sidelines. Mike has been very active through the last cycles. Steve Bannon said recently that Mike, that president would not have been impeached if it wasn't for Mike Bloomberg and what he spent in the 18th cycle to, to elect 18 Democrats across the country. Mike Bloomberg basically felt to himself, it was not enough to just sit on the sidelines in terms of this campaign. I need to get in and do everything I can 
because ultimately defeating Donald Trump is the most important thing I think any American can do this what cycle. Do you, Kevin, what do you think uh, Biden's uh, main vulnerabilities are, uh, not just in terms of numbers, but as a candidate, uh, ge more generally speaking? You know, my, my job is not to focus on Joe Biden. My, my campaign is not to focus on Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. But I think they it. all have strong campaigns, right? People ask a lot of questions about Joe Biden. All of the number, numbers I see recently is that, is that Biden is getting weaker and Bernie is getting stronger. Right. But that's not my focus. Right. There's going to be an election in in two weeks. Right. And so for me to speculate what's going to happen in two weeks, what's the point? Right. We'll see what happens in two weeks in Iowa and then we'll see what happens a week after that in New Hampshire. What I do know is that what Mike Bloomberg is doing now, no one else in this country is doing. No one else is organizing in those six states. We have leadership teams in all six of them. No one is running a campaign outside the first four early states. Mike Bloomberg is running a campaign in 36 states across this country now. Mike Bloomberg is bringing Democrats together in places that no Democrat has brought them together yet in this cycle. And that's a mistake. Texas is an enormous state. It's the third largest state in the country. It can move from red to blue. Mike Bloomberg got into this campaign seven weeks ago, and he was the second Democrat running for president who called the, the chairman of the state Democratic Party there, Cory Booker having been the first. And to my knowledge, no one else has called since. Right. And we have a team in place now to focus on that state. And when Mike called that chair, he said, thank you for calling. Can't tell you how much I love the ads. Can't tell you what's going to help to move this state in terms of voter registration to move it from red to blue. Right. And when can you get down to Texas? And so we've been in Texas. We've been in North Carolina. We've been in Florida. We've been in Oklahoma. We've been in California. It is too important a cycle for us to ignore the rest of the country, particularly those states where the election occurs, and spend all of our time in Iowa. So Bloomberg gave an interview recently to Reuters in which he said, quote, I'm spending all my money to get rid of Trump. According to Forbes, Bloomberg is worth $60 billion. Is he going to spend $60 billion to become president? Well, let's parse that. I think Mike said, I'm spending all of my money, the money that I'm spending on the campaign, ultimately to, to defeat Donald Trump, whether Mike is the nominee or whether we, we go on to support the eventual nominee. I don't think Mike had said that he was liquidating the company. What is the limit uh, in terms of the amount of money that he would spend? Because people have talked about a billion, but he's worth, as Mike just said, $60 billion, So why not $10 billion? I mean, I'll tell you what I've always known about Bloomberg Accounting, which is I think the organization, whether it be the company, whether it be campaigns, whether it's been things that Mike has done philanthropically, he's always been very good about counting every nickel, making sure every next pencil we need to spend is something we need to spend on. Making sure that every single it's a lot of nickels to count is, is <laughs> all I can that. say. It's a lot of accountants too, <laughs> and so I think Mike's view is always: I'm going to question every expense and make sure that that's money that's a, that's appropriate for us to allocate, but has never set for the things that he's sought to do an overall budget. Um, and I think that has ultimately been what has led to his success in getting elected building one of the greatest technology companies New York City has ever seen, and his enormous effectiveness in taking on issues like climate change and guns. No one at the beginning, when Mike said, I'm going to take on the NRA, said, well, okay, well, what's your budget, right? Or how much exactly are you going to spend? And what does that mean? Mike said, what do we need to do to be effective? And how do we spend our money effectively? But look, you know, big picture here, we've got a New York billionaire in the White House, and do we really want to replace him with another New York billionaire? Yeah, so this is a country of 330 yeah, yeah. million okay, people. And so, Only so New York Michael, so billionaires should yeah. be president great. of the so, United States. So being mayor for 12 years in yeah. New York City obviously means nothing to you. So the fact that Mike Bloomberg has represented more constituents, these yeah. are people who public officials serve more constituents than any single Democrat on the stage today, 
right? Mm -hmm. There are more people in New York City than there are in Massachusetts. And I would argue that a mayor has more to do in running the city than a senator from Massachusetts has in running the state. There are vastly more people in New York City than there are in Delaware, right? The only other person who has recently run and had more constituents was Cory Booker. There are slightly more people in New Jersey than -hmm. there are in New York. And so, yes, Mike Bloomberg built one of the greatest companies in New York City, right? His dad never made more than $6,000 a year, and he paid his way through college, and he had enormous success. And then he walked away from that success to lead New York City after Mm 9-11, right, to enormous success, right? And so for people who say, oh, but he's just a billionaire, I mean, that's a load of crap, right? Well, he is. To compare, yeah, he's enormously successful, right? Mm -hmm. Donald Trump was a reality TV star who had become a billionaire because of money his father had given him. He was not someone with a record of public service. He was not someone with a record of philanthropy. He was not someone with a record of doing anything else other than caring about himself. Mm-hmm. And so to compare Mike Bloomberg to Donald Trump, I think is laughable. You know, our colleague, uh, Brittany Shepard, interviewed Tom Steyer yesterday, another billionaire <laughs> in this race. Um, and uh, the contrast he drew between himself and Mike Bloomberg is that he supports a wealth tax, um, a billionaire tax, I think you called it. Um, <laughs> that is not Mike Bloomberg's position. Just lay out why he is against uh, a uh, Elizabeth Warren-style wealth tax. Well, I, you know, I think you look around the world and they're unworkable, right? And so it's nice to be for something that that is kind of pie in the sky. It doesn't work. Let's look at what Mike Bloomberg has done. Has Tom Steyer ever raised a tax? Has Tom Steyer ever served in public service? I like Tom. I think Tom's a very decent guy. I love that Tom has woken up Uh, from a business career and decided to take on the environment. I love that he's decided to take on Donald Trump. I even like that he's decided to run for president of the United States. But to compare Mike Bloomberg to Donald Trump is also laughable, right? I I read the other day that people were impressed that Tom Steyer has given away $22 million philanthropically. That's fine. Mike Bloomberg's given away $5 billion. Uh, You know, Tom Steyer (laughs) has taken on on the issue of the environment. Uh, That's great. I think he opposed a pipeline which ultimately got built. Mike Bloomberg has now closed 302 coal plants around this country, right? Back to Mike Bloomberg as mayor. Mike Bloomberg raised taxes in New York City more than the current incumbent who professes to be a progressive icon in this in this city. I'm not I live in New York. I'm not sure what tax that uh, Bill de Blasio has raised. I know Mike Bloomberg handed him an enormous surplus and that he's continued to spend that down. We had an eleven billion dollar deficit post nine eleven. And we had to go out and raise every tax in New York City. So let's talk for a second about a key, maybe the key uh, Democratic constituency in any uh, primary race, which is African-Americans. Mm-hmm. That is a constituency uh, that where Mike Bloomberg has, at least the consensus is, that he's got some some work to do, some challenges. He went down to Oklahoma, gave a big speech down there. Talk about how he is going to uh, win over African-Americans uh, in this primary battle and how important, Listen, that, and think, how important <clears throat> that is to his success. I think uh, the same way he did in New York. I mean, the other day, you know, Mike Bloomberg was asked, hey, did you have a change of heart when it came to, to stop and frisk? And I, and I talked to the person who asked the question. I said, you know, Mike Bloomberg didn't have a change of heart. Mike Bloomberg came into New York City and 600 people in New York City were dying every single year. And 85, 90 percent of them were, were young men of color. And Mike Bloomberg said, hey, that has to stop. It can't be that young men in this city that I'm now governing are being shot down. And it led to a practice which was very controversial, and Mike Bloomberg agreed was controversial and agreed that it had been overused. But let's talk about what else Mike Bloomberg did in his office, right? New York City was the only country, the only city in the country where, while murders came down, and Mike reduced them by half from about 600 to about 300, where we also reduced the populations of the prisons. And so people like to say, oh, Mike Bloomberg is locking them up. Exactly the reverse was true. Over the period that Mike was in office, Prison populations nationally grew by 6%. In New York City, they fell 
by 36%. But you just said when you were describing stop and frisk that Mike Bloomberg agreed that it was controversial. Yes. And he also defended it repeatedly in court when a federal judge and others Mm -hmm. challenged its constitutionality and its impact on young African-American males. He didn't agree that it was wrong until just shortly before he decided he was going to run for president. Now, that seems well, a bit no, so coincidental, yeah, so doesn't it? That's not exactly it? true, because Mike Bloomberg ended it before he left, right, which which people don't like. Wasn't he forced well, to by a federal order. judge? No, no, the, the, the case was appealed and the impact was never actually implemented by the court. And so, no, he was not forced to do it by a judge. Well, a judge had ruled it was unconstitutional. Yeah, a judge had ruled and the ruling, as you pointed, had been put on hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike Bloomberg effectively ended the practice. The numbers are, I mean, the court yeah, case is But he is defended it in court yeah, and he fought to keep he it. He did. He did. Because young men of color were being gunned down in this city every single day. But and, that that is the argument for every draconian anti-crime policy, that the goal, that why did the, the 1994 crime bill that Joe Biden uh, sponsored was all about uh, ending the so crack trade yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in so, African-American so, communities, so but Danny it had asked, a and so Danny horrendous asked a really impact. That's right. And so Danny asked a really good question, which is what else did Mike Bloomberg do, right? And so- I don't know other mayors around the country who also came to office every day and said, we can't send young men to prison because if they go into prison, they'll find a cycle they can't get out. I don't know anyone else who walked in and said, hey, recidivism is an enormous concern. And so recidivism dropped by a third in New York City because Mike Bloomberg put in policies to reduce that program. I don't know anyone said, hey, juvenile detention is a problem. We have to reduce it. So juvenile detention over the same period Mike was in office fell by a quarter. I don't know anyone else because no one ever did create a municipal program to focus on the discrimination that young men of color faced, not only in criminal justice, but in terms of employment, in terms of health care, and a host of other things. And so Mike started YMI, not because someone asked him to, not because a court asked him to. No one else in the country had done it. It's called the Young Men's Initiative. It was ultimately adopted by Barack Obama in his second term, where Barack Obama brought Mike Bloomberg to the White House to say, this is an important program. We're going to copy it nationally, and I'm going to call it My Brother's Keeper. There was no other mayor in the country who can also say those things. And so, yes, listen, Mike is someone who's largely driven by public health, which is look at the statistics. How do we solve a problem? Right. And I think if anyone blames anything for Mike, it's not his heart and what he's trying to do, but sometimes the unpassionate way in which he goes about it. So, Kevin, you're the campaign manager. So how does he and this is a serious question. It's not a gotcha question, but I want to understand how you fight the perception that he didn't just make this decision and ad- admit that he was wrong a week before he gets into the race, that that wasn't just purely o- opportunistic. Because it undercuts his image as he's an unconventional politician. He's not a politician like the rest of them. That's well, a problem that, I, I, in terms I, I, of perceptions, think, at I, least. I guess. Um, you know, the problem perception for me is a president who will never admit any wrongdoing ever. And so if our condition is, hey, you admitted you were wrong. Hey, you should never do that. Well, we have that guy. And, you know, you can keep him, I suppose. That's a fair point. Um, I think, think, you know, the second part is really trying to build the broadest possible coalition focusing on important things. Mike gave a really important speech in Tulsa last week where he really talked about discrimination that African-American families across the country find in, in issues of finance and employment and wealth creation and how ultimately we would change that. Mike is the only person I know in this race who has presented a plan like that or has a track record of showing that he can actually deliver on it. And listen, part of it is actually pulling people to the cause. 
right? I mean, listen, you don't need to just ask me. You can ask Steve Benjamin, who's the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, why he got into this race, or Mayor Tubbs in Stockton, why he got into this race. Both are co-chairs of the campaign now, right? Or Mayor Nutter from Philadelphia, who's the political chair of this campaign, and why he got on. Mm -hmm. Because, hey, listen, there there is a little bit of a reason why mayors don't tend to run for, for larger office, because you've had to make decisions, and you've had to do things. And listen, even if you're doing things for the for the right reasons, they don't always go well. It's a, it's a tough business. It is vastly easier to, to sit in the Senate and talk about these things. I mean, I watched this debate and Amy Klobuchar seems to think that she's qualified to be president because she sat in committee hearings. I'm not quite sure what the difficult questions you make about, you know, the amendment in the second degree is, but it's not going to come back and bite you in the butt. You know, yeah. that said, I would much rather have someone who's dealt with real issues and addressed real problems and actually created real solutions. Well, okay, somebody else who's sat in, in a lot of in a lot of committee hearings is Bernie Sanders. And right now, he is leading in mm -hmm. Iowa and in New he's Hampshire. He's leading in New Hampshire. In, in New Hampshire, but he's at the top in in, right. in Iowa as well and could win both Iowa yeah. and New Hampshire and, and move on to, you know, Super Tuesday with a real head of steam. A couple of days ago, it was reported that Hillary Clinton in an upcoming documentary said of uh, Bernie, "Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him." He gets nothing done. Is that a I've, sentiment I've, that uh, Bloomberg I, I, would agree I, I, with? I, uh, Mike doesn't know him. I, I, I've heard it. Really? Literally I, doesn't I, know him? And I think it's a sentiment that a lot of people would agree with. Um, I've never met the center. Um, I think he can be enormously compelling with a vision for what the world should be. I don't, I, you know, to try to find what he's done, you'd have to probably go back to when he was a mayor. Um, and that might be 30 years ago. Uh, but listen, I mean, I understand when you hear him speak why it's compelling. Right. And what the vision is. The problem is, is that, in my view, he loses a general election pretty clearly and decisively, particularly in those six swing states I mentioned. And at the end of the day, you know, Washington is a place where you really do need to get things done. And I think if you wanted someone who gave a sort of leftist vision of where Trump is, which, quite frankly, I'm very sympathetic to in many ways, he speaks to the world that that I'd like to see. Um, I think he will deliver on that, but I don't but think he's, a real But if change. he's the nominee, and you've probably said this before, will Bloomberg spend money to get him elect to, to elect him over Trump? You know what, 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 what Mike has said, he gets the question, I think, more about and has about Senator Warren than he has about Senator Sanders. But, you know, his view, as he said recently, is when it comes to Senator Warren, which is, hey, there's not a lot I agree with her on. And we certainly had our disagreements, but she's not Donald Trump. And that's all I need to know. So would that apply to, to Bernie? Yeah, it would. So he will support Bernie Sanders if he's the nominee and actually spend money to help elect him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How much? Hey, listen, we're focused first. <laughs> $60 billion? <laughs> right. We're focused yeah. first. But you know, one of the things that Mike has said, yeah. I think it is important back to those six states, and maybe you haven't heard about it, which is we've gone out and we've built teams in, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan, North Carolina, Florida, and Arizona. And what Mike has said is I'm signing all of those office leases right through November. And so the importance of keeping those field staff in those states where Trump is active now and where no one was fighting for democratic causes until today is really important. And so what happens is, you guys know, you've probably been out to Iowa the day after a caucus. The greatest photo is the is the, the rental car lot in Des Moines. Everyone drives the car, <laughs> they toss the keys to the attendant in Avis, and they get on the plane to head to Boston so they can head up to New Hampshire. Uh, the same is true in a lot of these early states. North Carolina has a Super Tuesday primary, early March. And as soon as it's over, people just get up and they head for the next place. But that's a state we have to win in November. And so what Mike has said to the staff in North Carolina, as he has in Michigan, as he has in Wisconsin and elsewhere, is I'm signing those leases through November. And when this primary is over, you're going to stay and you're going to keep knocking on doors. You're going to keep IDing voters and you're going to keep working whether I'm the nominee or not. 
because the November election is too important. So here we are in a political discussion this week. Uh, we're, you know, what, 20 minutes into it, maybe a little bit more, and we have not mentioned a word about impeachment, which is what everybody in Washington is focused on right now. Is impeachment a distraction from uh, the Bloomberg perspective? <clears throat> you know, listen, I think from a constitutional perspective, it's incredibly important. A president has abused his power. A president has ignored the three parts of government uh, that should be respected by disrespecting uh, the ability of Congress to do his jobs. And he should be impeached. And so from that perspective, it's, well, he was impeached. it's incredibly important. From a November election standpoint, I would actually throw impeachment and the early states in together to say that we're obsessed with, and you guys have asked me a ton of questions about Iowa. You know what I can tell you about Iowa in November? Doesn't matter. Here's the one thing I know about Iowa, right? Which is we've spent two years as Democrats raising every nickel we can from here in New York to Los Angeles, to Boston, to Houston. And every candidate that's running, most of them other than Mike, who is not raising money, has invested it in winning a campaign in August, in, in, in Iowa. The one thing I can tell you about Iowa is that Donald Trump's going to win Iowa. There's no question about that. Every Democrat pollster I know, every Republican pollster I know tells me that Donald Trump will win Iowa, as he will Ohio. What has Donald Trump done? Donald Trump has focused on swing voters in those states I talked to you about. And so from a November election important, yeah, impeachment doesn't really matter. Brad Parscale said the other day that it actually helps him a little bit because it helps with fundraising. They're raising a lot of money right? off it. In yeah. terms of Iowa, Donald Trump doesn't have to invest a nickel in Iowa, right? And so you know he's going to win it anyway. So impeachment is incredibly important, I think, as we try to preserve the American form of democracy. But in terms of the November election, as best I can tell, it's not important at all to the voters you need to decide that election, which is incredibly important for me and for other Democrats in changing the course of the country. So we're about uh, six months out from the nominating conventions. Are you uh, preparing, beginning to think about a brokered convention? Do you think that's... Uh... I've been meaning to ask someone about hotel rooms in Milwaukee. Yeah, you better. Around, <laughs> I haven't gotten around to that yet. Um, <laughs> we have been to Milwaukee. We've campaigned up in Wisconsin. Uh, I saw the new arena. It's a fabulous place. Uh, I will tell you, our staff in in, in uh, Wisconsin is is excited to be brought together and to try to win that campaign. Trump is stronger in that state than he was when he got elected, despite winning by a mere twenty three thousand votes or or so. Listen, I think you could certainly envision a case where there's a brokered convention in ways that we've always kind of speculated before, but in hindsight, we're a bit foolhardy. Um, and then there's going to be a really interesting question to, to sort of decide, I think, for the delegates and the super delegates and and party elders, which is, do we choose a candidate with a plurality in that case, a simple plurality? Or is there another math of trying to figure out how to choose the candidate who would be best able to beat President Trump in those six states I mentioned? And it, it might be a very interesting time. I got one last uh, quick money question for you. Uh, we talked about how much Bloomberg is prepared to spend. Are you raising any money from anybody else? No, I mean Mike is not taking any contributions, and so it's not taking. So this entirely, is entirely, entirely self-funded entirely, entirely campaign. Self, entirely self-funded. Uh, even the merchandise we sell is sold at cost. And so even just from a sort of basic democratic perspective yeah. here, I mean, is this really good for our democracy that one guy who's got a shitload of money can spend as much as he wants to elect himself president with no contributions from anybody else? I don't think anyone would argue the presidency is for sale, and I don't think it is for sale. I think the, I think the road of self-financed candidates is, is littered with carcasses. Right, I think the difference here for Mike. Well, it's not good is, for you, your oh, prospects. Listen, hey, listen, Mike got erected three times mayor of New York without taking a nickel from anyone. And I will tell you, 
that it was the most honest form of government New York has seen in the history of New York. And not because necessarily anyone was thrown in prison before we left or, or after we were gone, but because money does corrupt. And so your your decisions are in, influenced by it. And so, listen, I think I think Mike's view here is I was happy to sit on the sidelines, but I need to get off the sidelines and I need to do anything I can to remove what is an existential threat, not just to this country, to this planet. And that's what he's focused on. All right. I got one last question, and this is going to test Kevin Sheikey's political skills. We've got competing <laughs> alma maters here. Yep. Isakoff's a graduate of... What, what is that place called? Washington oh, University. Washington University, in which St. is a, Louis. It's a university. I'm a graduate of Georgetown Day School in uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. high school. You're a graduate of both. Which is more prestigious? <laughs> I, I won't take the question, but I'll leave with the story, which is that when I was a freshman out at WashU, we had a visit from Harold Ramos, who was famously- Yes, probably another mis- WashU grad. I mean, Isikoff Absolutely. is old enough that they may have gone to school together. <laughs> uh, and Harold Ramos Not had great. written written Animal House, was in yep. Ghostbusters, uh, a famous right. uh, comedian and a movie star. And uh, Harold came by to speak to a few of us at a gathering. And at the time, embarrassingly so, at WashU, we had these sweatshirts that said, Washington University, the Harvard of the Midwest. Yeah. And um, I, I never wore one. One of a number of uh, um, universities. That does not claim. That claim. Yeah. And yes. so uh, I uh, uh, sat at this group who was watching uh, Harold Ramos speak. And, and Ramos looks at us and said, well, you guys have, have really come a long way. He goes, I mean, you just are such a prestigious place now compared to when I was here. And someone said, well, how is that? And he said, well, I was walking around and I saw these sweatshirts that said, Washington University, the Harvard of the Midwest. And he goes, wow, I mean, it's really something. He goes, when I was here, we had sweatshirts, but the sweatshirt said, Washington University, the Miami, the Miami of Ohio of Eastern Missouri. <laughs> and he said, so I just got to tell you, you guys have really right. reached a pinnacle yeah. that, that, that I could only have dreamed of. And so I'm, I'm uh, very proud of well, I'm, both of those. Uh, okay. I'm glad. I, I thought Wait, when you said you had a story to tell, it was going to be some story about the, me when I was at GDS. So I'm glad Georgetown, I avoided that fate. Georgetown Day, the Dalton hey. School yeah. of Washington, <laughs> D.C. Anyway, Kevin Cheeky, thanks for joining us. And um, see if you can arrange for your candidate to come on the uh, podcast. We'll, We'd love to. We'll come to him. To him. Count, on Count on it. All, All right. right. We got, we got you. It. On the record. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thanks to Washington Post national investigative reporter and author Carol Lenig, as well as Mike Bloomberg's 2020 campaign chief, Kevin Sheeky, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.